Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. Good morning, Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. Or as I would like to say, good morning, Mad Ave. I bring you greetings from Atlanta, Georgia. And um, I would say there is something that deeply connects New York and Atlanta, something quite spiritual and emotional, maybe even metaphysical. It's called the National League East Division. (laughs) And I have two words that God has laid upon my heart this morning. Go Braves. Sorry. There's actually a deeper connection between uh, the church that uh, my wife and I are active in in Atlanta. It's North Decatur Presbyterian Church and and your church, Madison Avenue. And it is a common practice uh, that I was happy to confirm this morning that has already taken place, as what happens in many churches, in fact, namely the sharing of the peace of Christ, following the assurance of pardon, which in my church, in Decatur, next to Atlanta, we have learned through sign language, due in part to the pandemic. And so for, for a couple of years now, well, when we started congregating back in person, more like a year ago, uh, we, would, we would do this to each other during the peace of Christ. May the peace of Christ be with you. Now, what if, what if, when you were sharing the peace of Christ to your neighbor uh, this morning, somebody next to you signed or said, may the fear of the Lord be with you which looks something like this. I know what I would do. I would say, and also with you. And then I would move to another pew. From super contagious COVID variants, worsening climate disasters, domestic terrorism, to mass shootings, racialized violence, and white conservative leaders, mostly men, trying to achieve greater control over women's bodily health, many, if not most of us, live under a cloud of fear. Some fears are valid, perhaps others not so much. It has been said that 90% of our fears do not really reflect reality. But I wonder whether this observation needs some significant updating to reflect life in America today. Indeed, there are plenty of good reasons to be afraid. One must acknowledge that some communities live in fear much more than others. Driving while black, walking while Asian continue to attract targeted targeted violence in many of our cities and beyond. For me, there are two sayings that characterize the past few years living in America. One is, I can't breathe, 
and the other one is, I'm not a virus. Both reflect the targeting of persons of color in America. More broadly, much of what we do, both whites and persons of color, on both ends of the political spectrum, much of what we do is now driven by fear. Whether it's electing political leaders who manipulate our fears, or practicing on the shooting range, or building walls, or simply walking guardedly on the sidewalk at night. But what would life be in our communities without fear? Imagine that. Children going to school without the threat of bullying and no more active shooter drills. People able to visit any city, any community, to walk in any park, to eat at any restaurant without the slightest concern about violence. Women, both cisgender and transgender, going about by themselves after dark, free to walk under the stars. People of all faiths, political persuasions, ethnicities, sexual orientations, and gender identities, living their lives openly without the fear of being targeted. Now that, that would be true shalom. The Bible offers its own vision of shalom for such a time as this, a vision that seems so ordinary, but also is so out of ordinary. We read from the prophet Zechariah, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of their great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Children playing in the streets. Old men and old women sitting in the streets of Jerusalem. This image of intergenerational play in the streets in complete safety becomes all the more wondrous and poignant in the aftermath of the mass shooting of a July 4th parade in a Chicago suburb, as well as the indiscriminate bombings of playgrounds and schools in Ukraine. And how about closer to home? And even within our homes, can we even talk to each other now, especially with midterm elections soon upon us? A world without fear would allow for dialogue and debate to take place without fear that disagreements might lead to violence. Having open, honest, and respectful discussions of politics and religion at the dinner table without any concern of alienating family members and causing indigestion for everyone. That, it seems, is not the world we live in. America today is riven with fear. And so, with our lives filled with fears, what do we do with what the Bible refers to as the fear of the Lord? Oh great, you might say. Is this one more fear to add to our ever-growing list of fears? The ultimate fear that God will zap us whenever we cross the line, whatever that line is? Truth be said, that is not the kind of fear meant in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Bible. 
Such godly fear has nothing to do with spreading terror and violence or quaking before God. Rather, the fear of the Lord has all to do with promoting wisdom and well-being. Listen to these proverbs. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. This kind of fear builds confidence and enhances and prolongs life, far different from the kind of fear that elicits fight, flight, or freeze. The fear of the Lord must mean something starkly different from the spirit of cowardice to which Paul refers in 2 Timothy. For the biblical psalmists and sages, the fear of the Lord was enlivening and enlightening. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Did you catch that at the end of Psalm 111, in which God is praised for doing great works and wonderful deeds, for providing food, for keeping covenant, for doing justice, for redeeming people, for being gracious and merciful. Those are the reasons, according to the psalmist, for fearing God. And such fear is expressed in praise, delight, and responsibility. This God is not a terrorist, and we are not to cower before God. The biblical sages insisted that the fear of the Lord draws one closer to God, rather than compels one to flee or hide from God's presence, like Adam does in the garden after partaking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In a word, this kind of peculiar fear in the Bible is what I would call affiliative, which seems absurd when we think of fear only as an avoidance response. Moreover, what kind of fear can be claimed as the beginning of wisdom? How does a God who is gracious and merciful inspire fear? This is no fear in any conventional sense. It is a peculiar kind of fear. It is not a paralyzing terror. It is a grateful fear, a source of joy and courage. Such fear, I submit, is akin to awe and wonder. As Abraham Heschel put it, unlike fear, awe does not make us shrink from the awe-inspiring object, but on the contrary, draws us near to it. This peculiar kind of fear cannot be fully captured in English translation from the Hebrew in the Old Testament. The best I've been able to come up with so far is awe-inspired reverence, even if it does sound a bit clunky. Regardless, awe is a powerful force. It stops us in our tracks, it arrests us in our routines, and shatters our illusions of control, while at the same time arousing a desire to venture forth in a new direction, in wisdom, in wonder. Awe awakens wonder, and wonder overcomes fear, like the perfect love described in 1 John, which casts out all fear. Such awe-filled fear has nothing to do with punishment, 
and everything to do with wonder, love, and praise, to quote a famous Wesleyan hymn. If awe is the beginning of wonder, then wonder is the beginning of wisdom. Just ask Socrates, who said, wonder is the only beginning of philosophy. Or as our biblical sages and psalmists put it, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, have you ever experienced this kind of fear? This experience of awe and wonder? Believe it or not, there is an emerging field of science called the science of awe. Research psychologists defined awe as an emotion located in the upper reaches of pleasure and on the boundary of fear. All experiences of awe have in common this perception of vastness, whether in size or in complexity, that dramatically expands our usual frame of reference, and at the same time results in a self-perception that researchers describe as the small self, a sense that one's own very being and goals are small in comparison to something much larger. And what they found is that experiences of awe often produce pro-social behavior, such as generosity, altruism, service to others. It appears that the small self, as research psychologists refer to, the small self is also the empowered self, the self empowered to do good things as a result of an experience of awe. Now there's one classic case in the Bible that illustrates this so well, and that's the character of Job. After all his suffering, God finally shows up as the voice of the whirlwind and shows Job that the world is much larger than himself, from the celestial heavens to the awesome creatures of the wild. And what Job says in response says it all. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job admits to having spoken out of ignorance of the wonderful things he has been shown by God, whose revelation of creation exposed what Job did not understand. And this experience required a new orientation toward the world and toward himself, and so Job finds himself to be very small before God and the vastness of creation. But, and this is the point, but he is not rendered incapacitated by God showing up and showing Job all of creation. Once Job is restored, Job takes on a new agency and he does something quite outlandish and just. Job, the patriarch, commits the unprecedented act of, having his, of sharing his inheritance with his three daughters. And in biblical antiquity, that was an unprecedented act. In biblical antiquity, the daughters had to marry outside the family as a matter of economic survival, but not in Job's household. Job cares about the dignity and economic well-being of all his children including his daughters, much like God's care for all the creatures of the wild. 
And by sharing his wealth, Job's daughters will have choices that most young women will not have in the ancient world, including the choice of determining their own livelihood apart from domination by men. And perhaps it is because, for the first time, Job is able to see the world through his daughter's eyes as much as he has perceived the world anew through God's eyes. In any case, it is out of empathy that Job comes to realize the struggles that his daughters face in a world dominated by men. And in doing so, Job upends the patriarchal conventions as much as God upended Job's world in awe. Job's pro-social behavior served the cause of justice, specifically gender justice, which leads to inclusive love. And so that is one biblical example of what I call the politics of fear. Now, we think of the politics of fear as the divisive polarization that has torn up the American political landscape. Fear and fear-mongering, hatred and violence. But biblically speaking, the politics of fear, that is the fear of the Lord, includes justice and mercy, wisdom and hope, joy and perseverance, charity and moral responsibility. Eric Liu, CEO of the Citizen University, a nonprofit organization that teaches civic empowerment, has this to say about the state of American society when it comes to political discourse. He says, this point isn't for us to get to some magical consensus that all Americans believe X or all Americans think this way. America, he says, is an argument. We were meant to contest the tensions between liberty and equality, between strong national government and local control, between a colorblind approach to law and the Constitution, and a color-conscious one. All these tensions, he says, are baked into our system. And even though our politics is toxically polarized right now, we don't need fewer arguments right now what we just need are less stupid ones. Ah, yes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom. Yes, but the biblical sage goes on to say that fools despise wisdom and instruction in Proverbs. Developing empathy for others need not suffer fools. But neither must we reflexively condemn others as fools who simply disagree with us or have only quote-unquote stupid arguments in our eyes. It's complicated, but the sages acknowledge that there are times when it is best and just to walk away when no progress can be had. Proverbs 26, do not answer fools according to their folly or you will be a fool yourself. Sometimes that can hold true, but I digress. I want to end on an experience of awe that literally invaded our computer screens and television sets this past summer at the height of political turmoil and polarization and fear. It was something that seemed to come from our wildest dreams, but it was altogether real. From the depths of space, 
came new, startling images of the universe way back in time, thanks to the James Webb Space Telescope, which I think should be renamed, but I digress. And it's on the front cover of your bulletin. If you would turn to that, I invite you to do so. This particular photograph from the James Webb Telescope is of the Carina Nebula, only 7,600 light years away from Earth, practically within our cosmic neighborhood. It is a star nursery filled with gas and dust, the raw material for stars and planets, the same stuff we're made out of here on Earth. And what you are looking at is a snapshot of stars being birthed, along with stars' entire solar systems, some perhaps like our own, living worlds in the making. Now that's a portrait of otherworldly awe. And if there is any wisdom to be had from such awe, well, is there any wisdom to be had from such awe? I'm glad you asked that question. I want to cite one astronomer who had a hand in the development and mission of the James Webb Telescope. His name is Dr. Kevin Hainline. And he had this to say when these images first came out. He says, so I don't feel small. I never feel small when I look at these images. Rather, I feel so privileged to be given an opportunity to do anything at all, to play softball, to pet a cat late at night. These are things that I have been given a privilege by every one of my atoms over 13 billion years ago. I love thinking about this, this map of the universe where all of my atoms are like little lights and for a long period of time they're all over the place and then whoosh, they come together and I am here for a tiny little bit of time and then they're back into the universe. That doesn't make me feel small, that makes me feel strong. That makes me feel like I have a purpose. He goes on to say, I think, this, this is why the, I think that this is why the total obvious purpose, the meaning of life, the reason why we are here is not to destroy, it's not to separate each other, it's not to other each other, it's literally to love each other. And if you don't love each other because you're made out of the same stuff, then you're doing it wrong. We're better when we're diverse. We're better when we come together and work together. We're better when we bring new ideas to the table. That's the whole point of this. And then he says at the end, so when you look at these images, don't think, I'm so small, what am I? Instead, think, the universe put me together. I'm pretty great. Or to put it theologically, the God of the universe put you and me together, made in the image of the cosmic God, and made out of cosmic dust and gas. The God who not only determines the number of the stars and gives to all of them their names, according to the psalmist, but who also knows your name and my name. And to know that, is to be all the wiser. 
That's where the fear of the Lord begins. That's where wisdom begins. In awe and wonder. What would life look like if everyone were open to the kind of wonder that leads to wisdom? Wisdom and love would guide our politics. Our policies would be grounded in the common good for the flourishing of all communities and the planet. With awe-filled courage, we would work to overcome injustice as it impacts the most vulnerable and underserved in our communities. In such awe, there would be affordable housing for all with a living income and meaningful work. In such awe and wonder, essential workers would no longer be dispensable workers. In such awe, we would recognize the image of God no less in all of us, imprinted with the majesty of the universe no less. Well, one can wonder, or we can also work and hope and wonder. And in the meantime, let me end with this, dear friends. May the fear of the Lord be with you. Amen.